Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we get a taste of the aromatic flavours of Hainan at a new opening in London. So it's a pleasure and it's an honour to actually for us to present Hainan Cuisine because a lot of people coming to us, like last night, we had an old couple, they had a Hainanese friend and they're like interested to try. I think our presentation is still a little bit different to what you will see in Hainan. Also in the programme, we find out what borscht means for Ukrainian identity. Every time I come back to Ukraine, the borscht tastes completely differently than here making it in England. It's just this amazing taste which you can get and achieve however much you try here in England. Plus, we journey to Tuscany to learn how to make the perfect espresso. All that here on the menu on Monaco Radio. Anybody who enjoys Chinese cuisine will know that different regions of this vast country have dramatically different styles when it comes to cooking. While Sichuan and Cantonese have become staples the world over, some of the traditions still beg to be discovered on the global stage. Hainan House, a brand new restaurant in London, is set on bringing the food of this island province in the South China Sea to a new audience. Restaurateur Sunny Wu and chef Irene Hua worked together to create a menu that celebrates the subtle, aromatic and very spicy flavours of this region. They joined me in the studio to explain more. I started by asking them where the idea to found Hainan House began. So it was actually back three years ago after I finished with my last project back in 2019. I had some time to rest because that, that project was really hectic and busy. And then I had idea of Hainan House back in 2020. I registered everything for the concept and then started building the brand, probably starting uh, around 2021. And I was like, I needed someone to help me on the side for um, designing the whole menu because I had an idea, had a structure of the concept, but I didn't have the execution skill. And then luckily, after going through a few rounds, I was having a conversation with Irene back in 2022. Yeah, like last year. Her skill is actually perfectly fitting to what I want to kind of build upon as well. And it's, it's a good project, I think, to draw upon for both of us in terms of, how to say, for the, for the initial period. We both kind of learn from each other and then build it up upon how I want to kind of... I had a vision, but then how I wanted to put an actual framework of how Hannah House could work. Irene, so how do you fit into this? What's your background and what attracted you or what attracts you now to Hainanese cuisine? Yes, my background is quite uh, varied. I studied fashion management and then, yeah, before I'd even finished the degree, I decided I, I it wasn't for me and I... Um, started working in hospitality mostly for fun and then I just really loved also, it. Also we should acknowledge <laughs> the stint disclaimer and <laughs> a very important stint as the manager of the Monocle yes. Cafe. Yeah so Monocle was actually where I got my um, start in hospitality and I was kind of like oh where's gonna hire me like in hospitality I have no experience like I've been working for a couple of years in marketing um, and then it just worked out really well that I kind of fit the Monocle brand and came to work at the Monocle Cafe stayed for years and um, because I loved it and ended up managing the cafe and as I was managing the cafe started working on the menu and at this point I was like we worked with a chef and a consultant but I was 
at this point where I realized like I really needed to learn about this. So um, I left a couple of years ago and started working in kitchens and back of house. And I've worked at a real mix of places and tried to pick up lots of different skills. And then more recently have become more focused on kind of trying to reconnect with like food of my heritage and, and try and figure out what type of chef I am personally. And so I grew up in a family that like owns a takeaway. So like Cantonese food is like very much my home food. But then also my dad is Chinese Vietnamese. So there's very like light Vietnamese flavors in there that are like spicy and sour and use fruit in a way that's very similar to Hainan. And so, um, yeah, and so it uh, worked out really well when I met Sunny because I'd actually just come from a Singaporean restaurant as well, which is famous for Hainanese <laughs> chicken. And so all this, all these kind of like stars aligned. And then, yeah, we started working together and did about a year of development, getting used to each other, developing like the concept together, working on the menus and then ultimately, yeah, trying to find a site. And um, yeah, now we've been open for a month. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, I want to hear from you, Sunny, because you're from Hainan. Yeah. What is Hainanese cuisine like? Can you give our listener an idea and a taste of what it consists of and what its characteristics are? Cuisine that I would say is really niche in Chinese because China has a very broad, famous eight main cuisine regions and Hainan is one of the smaller ones underneath the Canton um, cuisine. So it's more focusing on the ingredients because Hainan, Hainan Island is quite resourceful in, let's say, seafood and poultry um, farming. Like Back in the old days, it's more self-sufficient uh, but now because people in the mainland want to have like more food from it so it's product like production and uh, farming wise it's sometimes it can be a bit of limited nowadays um but has always been quite fruitful and rich in supply themselves in seafood mainly the flavor is based on quite light foundation and then you have a lot of condiment to go with it and that's how we want to orient Hana House with it as well because we start with a opening menu that is quite light and refreshing flavors but then we have a lot of housemade spicy paste chili sauces which Irene helped develop ourselves and then some of it is taking inspiration from like the famous really famous yellow lantern chili paste in Hainan Island which everybody knows in China but it's it's still not like internationally recognized so it's a pleasure and it's an honor to actually for us to present Hainan cuisine because a lot of people coming to us like last night we had an old couple they had a Hainanese friend and they're like interested to try our food to see oh what's the difference and then they show the picture to their friend and I think our presentation is still a little bit different to what you will see in Hainan but it's a very good take that if people are interested in Hainan cuisine and then they can explore more and they will search upon it and then maybe when they think about you know going to China that can be one of their destinations in the future. Irene, from a chef's point of view, um, the food is just so delicate, but also it has this incredible bouquet of aromas when you when you really tuck into it. How difficult is it to achieve that result, that really light-footed result? And also, in general, how did you approach creating the menu in a way that was respectful of the tradition that is there, but also giving it a spin that works for a site in Islington, in London right now? Yeah, it was tricky. It was a lot of back and forth. I've 
been to Hainan, so I've I've tried some of the cuisine, and I think it helps that my family background, being like Chinese Vietnamese, is kind of similar in its origin, and Cantonese food is one of the lighter cuisines um, in Chinese cuisine, so it has a very fim- like, has a very similar almost like taste profile. And so, yeah, I think some of it was finding reference points from my own like home food and family food. Some of it was using my professional experience, my experience with like Hainanese chicken and Singaporean cuisine and pulling in those kind of techniques. And then a lot of it was actually just research and development on traditional techniques, um, existing recipes, a lot of like translating Chinese recipes <laughs> yeah. um, and Chinese techniques. From old grandmother's books. Yeah. Yeah, and even just like there's like a wealth of resources on the internet. Videos. Yeah, videos, like so many videos in China. They're just much harder to find if you don't actually like type Chinese. Yeah, Um, So yeah, a fair amount of translating and like trying to, yeah, watch videos and kind of decipher what kind of techniques that they're using. The techniques themselves that we use are fairly traditional. I pull in some of my professional techniques in terms of like poultry, and yeah, noodle making, um, which we did some testing of, and kind of making doughs and things like Chong that. Yeah, the rice rolls. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's there's techniques that I've used in and different restaurants, and so yeah, it's a real mix because the food is so light. What we've tried to do is build in lots and lots of depth of flavor, and I think that's something that Sunny's palette is really focused on. Even though the food is really simple, we try and build lots of layers of flavor, like into the stocks, um, into the sauces, into the cooking techniques themselves. There's a dish that uses like Chinese Buddhist like temple food mm. techniques, and that's a really great way to. Yeah, we serve it in a clay pot. Um, yeah, and so we serve it in a clay pot, and that's a really great great way to have more vegetarian dishes on the menu. Sunny, what's a dish on the menu that really speaks to your heart, reminds you of home or, or brings back memories of childhood? Or what is a dish on the menu that is just really, really special to you? I would say, because my background is more from the dessert, so I, I really like the one that's actually quite labour-intensive making, the wah, which is the sticky rice cake. And I think we're the only, I would say now at the moment, maybe as far as I know, the only one to serve it warm in a restaurant, like as a dessert, a very traditional Chinese dessert. I would I would say every Chinese person is quite familiar with that kind of sticky chewiness of the bite. Um, but we make our papaya jam and coconut, toasted coconut in-house, which is really nice um, to give a bit of different, because traditionally you have it with peanuts and coconut, but we kind of like change it a little bit. Um, and the finish of it just looks really cute and can present how we want to show customers about Hainan Island, because that's called Ibua in Hainanese, and it's everywhere like everybody knows about it and people come just for that and there were a customer coming just to take away two of them and some customer asking whether you do frozen ones maybe in the future but it's just very labor intensive but that's one of the dishes I really like and of course the poached pusan and we use the pusan because I want to because normally when you order in restaurants you get either the leg part or the breast part but the way the reason why we serve pusan is because it's a small chicken and then the texture of the meat and the skin is similar to the special breed in Hainan, which is called Wenchang chicken. And you can have all the parts of the chicken when you order one dish because we serve half of it. Irene, from your point of view, what's your favourite dish to cook? And I guess also, 
what is there of yours, like of your sprinkle of magic that is uniquely yours in the menu? Um, I think when you look at the menu overall, there's actually a really good mix of kind of... My personal take as a chef, Sonny's like he created the cola chicken. Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, the, that's the way we come come like back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So like, there's a lot of like your influence and structure of it wanting to be Hainanese. A lot of like my experience coming from restaurants with like small limited menus and doing a lot of stuff um, in house. I would say the cola, the cola, <laughs> the least the favorite part is to do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's doing lots. Of, I think there's both good and bad because we do lots of stuff in house, yeah. and so it's like lots of great learning techniques. But yeah, it's also quite labor intensive. So and it's some lucky the restaurant's really, quite small. Sorry, and some really potent sauces. Yes, I have yeah. to say <laughs> that yeah. those things blow your head off. Yeah, yeah. There's a mix because there's such a light hand in some dishes because the cuisine is light, but then, you know, this region is famous for having these like yellow lantern chilies which are like like searing hot. So yeah, it's a real like yin-yang in the menu. So I think yeah, there's there's some dishes that are really really punchy and some dishes that are a lot lighter. I think like the cola chicken wings. The, Everybody loves it. Yeah, Everybody yeah. Loves big it. big fan favorite. Mostly because it's a chicken wing, I reckon, and there's not much wrong you can do with that. But yeah, like cola, cola braises are quite like I guess a Cantonese thing, and it's, it's a very hum, like hum cooking base. A lot, a lot yeah. of people use that, but like you created a different method for us to to yeah. you know, have it. Yeah, yeah, it's like a it's a home cooking style where a lot of the time you can braise like a whole chicken yeah. in cola with spices, and I think it must be a shortcut for using like Chinese spices. And so we wanted to put something homely like that on the menu, but we were really detailed in kind of what we wanted it to be. We wanted it to have like a crispy texture, but like a real sticky glaze. Mm. And then to kind of bring it into the brand more, we paired it with a really spicy like mango yellow chili yeah. sauce. And so, yeah, there's lots of stages to we the cola have, wing. Yeah, we yeah. might have that mango chili somehow in the future. Yeah, a lot of people have said they want to buy the mango chili. So yeah, we're going to figure out a way to to jar it um, and yeah. sell it maybe. So yeah, I think that's a dish that is definitely a mix of the both of us. Textures are really important in Chinese food. I think I'm not sure what my favorite dish Everything. would be. I think I think for me, what I love is like the the balance of the menu. I think there's like a little bit in there for everyone. We've tried to tick as many boxes as we can to hopefully make it really accessible. Yeah. Now we head to a home kitchen where Ukrainian journalist Roxoliana Lasica teaches us how to make borscht, her nation's beloved dish. The vibrant beetroot soup accompanies the Ukrainians throughout their lives, from large events such as weddings to ordinary weekday lunches, and each cook adds their own twist. Monocle's Julia Lasica sat down with her mother, Roxoliana, to find out how to make her version of this cherished traditional dish. So we are making today a Ukrainian dish called borscht. It's a staple dish, a very popular dish in Ukrainian cuisine. And it's, it's a beetroot soup, which can be made in different ways. It can be as like everyday meal, a light lunch meal, or it could be a ritual meal, which will would be served in any of, any of Ukrainian families. And it could be also one of the main courses of Ukrainian Christmas Eve celebration feast. Or it could be even served as a wedding dish. In different regions, you can have different versions of this dish. 
It could be cooked with chicken broth or it could be cooked with beef bones broth. could be even cooked with fish, for example. In Kharkiv region, in eastern Ukrainian city, main eastern Ukrainian city, you can add beer to the borscht dish. If, for example, Ukrainian national poet Taras Shevchenko loved in 19th century to be made with the fish broth. Different regions like Zakarpatia, for example, in the far west of the country, people used to prepare it with white beetroot. Or in Poltava, it was made with goose broth. So now I'm going to put on the hob my favorite black Colombian pot, which is my favorite to cook posh in. I will fill it one third with water. I will put my previously from, from the night before pre-soaked uh, beans. Could be any beans of your choice. Could be cannellini, could be broad beans, whatever uh, you prefer. And I'll put it with a very small whole onion and small carrot, also whole. And that is going to be our main base broth in which we are going to add whatever we want, whatever we prepare. We are going to prepare sofrito, another base, with chopped onions, sautéed, and then once it's getting softer, you add chopped or I like grated carrots. Incorporate everything, let it get together, the taste to penetrate, and then you add beetroots. Also could be chopped or could be grated. I prefer it grated. Along with this, you add chopped garlic, bay leaf, and let it saute for about 10 minutes all together before adding tomatoes, chopped tomatoes, and another 10 minutes to incorporate and all the taste to get through. And that is going to make a wonderful, delicious base, which you will add then when you are ready and when your main pot with, with the broth is ready. I like a lot of beetroots in my porch. I like it to be very intense, beautifully red color. Um, just we should remember, if we add a lot of beets, then we should balance the taste of sweetness with acidity. So then you will have to add more tomatoes. Or in olden times, people used to add fermented juice made, again, out of beetroot. The borscht can be a, a very, very different uh, texture, density. Well, for example, Poles, they like their borscht being completely like juice, or my husband uh, always recalls wine when he drinks borscht. It, it's served in cups. Um, it also can be a very important part of a ritual meal, like, for example, Christmas Eve meal. But it's, it's very aromatic, but you don't add many vegetables, just beet, beets boiled for a very long time with spices, and it makes a really lovely aromatic broth, and, but you just drink it as juice. In some parts of Russia, 
which was also adopted by Russians uh, from the 17th century, but it was like a luxurious meal at, back at that time because it was brought to Russian court by one of, one of favorites of uh, Tsarina Elizaveta Petrovna, daughter, one of the, the, the daughter and the heir of Pyotr the First. So she really loved borscht and, well, she hired cooks from Ukraine who used to make borscht for her. And that's how it became popular in Russia as well. I remember me coming to visit my family in Bucha during holidays. And I remember every time I come back to Ukraine, it, the borscht tastes completely differently than here making it in England. And it's just amazing. It's completely different than mine. It's not as dense, not as thick. It has got less vegetables, more broth. But it's just this in the amazing taste, which you get like the taste of home, which you can get and achieve however much you try here in England. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. This week, Italy has officially banned the production of lab-grown meat. The new law, put forward by Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, received final approval in Parliament on Thursday in what the right-wing government calls a defence of Italian culinary tradition. For now, the ruling will have little effect as synthetic meat products are not yet legal for human consumption in the EU. Our next headline this week is from Lisbon, where Monocle senior foreign correspondent Carlotta Rebello has been reporting from. Carlotta, what have you got for us today? Thanks, Monica. During this year's edition of the event, Web Summit served its one million cup of Delta coffee after first partnering with a Portuguese coffee maker in 2016. Food Summit's food trucks have served more than 100,000 meals over the course of this year's conference. The total floor space of Web Summit dedicated to food is approximately 215,000 square meters. That's the equivalent of over a thousand tennis courts. For Monocle in Lisbon, I'm Carlotta Rebello. Back to you, Monica. Thanks, Carlotta. And finally, the first restaurant in Italy with a dedicated menu for dogs has now opened. The new eatery, Fiuto, located in the Ponte Milvio district of Rome, will offer our canine friends a full three-course menu, complete with varying bowl sizes. Dishes on offer include chicken nuggets and mashed potatoes and pork loin with courgettes. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. Next up on The Menu, we journey to Italy to talk about the country's obsession with coffee. Espresso is a cherished daily ritual in Italy. People are very particular about how they like it, how it's made and which machine is used to do so. Lamarzocco's high-end machines are a common sight in some of the best cafes around the nation and they have become loved by skilled baristas the world over. On the outskirts of Florence, La Marzocco has set up its very own espresso academy where connoisseurs can learn the particulars about what goes into making a great cup of coffee. We dispatched Monocle correspondent Ivan Carvalho to visit the academy and he brought back this report. Florence is considered the birthplace of the Renaissance and home to impressive artwork by talents such as Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. Yet the Tuscan capital is also home to another great masterpiece, one millions enjoy each day at cafes around the world. 
I'm talking, of course, about the espresso machine and the Italian company L'Armazzocco. In 1939, two brothers, Giuseppe and Bruno Bambi, developed and patented the first coffee machine with a horizontal boiler, now an industry standard, which allowed baristas to preheat cups on top of the machine and no longer have to crowd around tall, narrow coffee makers behind the counter. Today, Lamazzocco's espresso machines and coffee grinders are beloved by baristas at coffee houses the world over. To ensure that coffee enthusiasts get the most out of their cup, the company in 2020 opened its Academia del Café Espresso, an educational center that not only chronicles the espresso machines designed by the brand in a small museum exhibit, but a place that examines how coffee is grown and where visitors can attend classes and tastings to explore the variety of flavors in espresso. On my arrival, I meet up with Lavinia Canni, a marketing manager at La Marzocco. Why Academia? So La Marzocco decided to open this place and open this place here. This was the old factory, so a very important space for us, especially because here it's also where La Marzocco changed pace. So this is the facility where La Marzocco started experiencing international growth, international expansion. So Academia was founded to cherish our heritage and to storytell our history. And on the other hand, was was founded to uh, create more awareness on coffee as a whole. So education is key and uh, be able to explain what coffee is at origin. That's why we have the courses, we have the tasting, we have the experiences, so, so that people can experience coffee at all level. La Marzocco was founded in 1927, and uh, till then it has uncrafted espresso machines. In 1939, the Bambi brothers patented the uh, first horizontal machines, uh, which is still a standard today. Now, now, Lavinia, the, the famous thing they did was this, the horizontal boilers, and then you could put the cups on top to keep warm, right? This was like a revolution in the coffee world. Yeah, it was a revolution. Before that, the espresso machine were vertical, very hard to use for the, for the barista. For La Marzocco, it's always been important that a new machine either would improve the quality of the cup or the life of the barista. So in 2009 great machine was the Strada, designed for and with the baristas. Enthusiasts can learn about roasting and attend tastings to sample the wide range of beans from microproducers of Robusta and Arabica in order to fully appreciate the flavors available in espresso. Nora Smaliova is a coffee educator at the Academy. So here we are one in one of our laboratories. We have a couple of them, and it's basically where we uh, do all kind of educational activities talking about coffee with the idea um, to be as inclusive as possible because coffee is a very um, complicated, let's say, matter. It's a natural product which comes in all kinds of different forms. And uh, so is also our education. So we offer, for example, degustations, which is uh, taking 30 minutes. And it's uh, like the first uh, get to know with a certain topic. Uh, it can be processing. It can be um, different extraction methods with the same coffee or high-end degustations where we offer very exclusive coffees, which people normally don't get to drink everywhere. But at the same time... Um, 
we have a lot of like tailor-made uh, education where the visitor can pick uh, one of the topics which he's uh, specifically interested in, be it latte art or uh, how to do a cupping, the degustation of coffee, um, sensory analysis. Now, in terms of the coffees you have here, you have things from Arabica, Robusta. Uh, today, for example, what, what can we try? I would, for example, recommend high-end Robusta, which would provide you and make you experience flavors which you wouldn't expect uh, from a coffee, and especially a Robusta. And this is from Brazil, these ones? It's from Brazil. It's from a small farm in Brazil with very uh, experimental processing methods. And, and today, is it still the case that people want the, the single origin, the uh, Arabica impurity, or, or today are people more open to blends? It depends where you look at. So um, talking about Italy, uh, you have both because you have like the traditional coffee houses where you find more the blends um, because it has like historical reasons. But at the same time, you find more and more third wave or fourth wave coffee shops, which uh, more focus on the single origin. Basically, coffee is an ever-learning process uh, which never finishes because we are talking about something which is very complex in taste and flavor. People say, and many people also don't know it, that it's way more complex than, for example, wine. Uh, we are talking about at least 850 different uh, aromas and flavors, uh, which starts with uh, fruitiness and end uh, in the direction of uh, even like winey uh, flavors or chocolate, caramel, sugarcane. Um, so um, it's a very complex matter, natural matter, and that's the beauty of coffee. La Masako's Academy has also created its own on-site greenhouse, which replicates the growing conditions of a coffee plantation in order to give visitors a feel for a product which most only ever see in processed form after roasting. Massimo Battaglia is a coffee researcher with La Mazzocco. Here inside the greenhouse, we recreate uh, the same situation that we have in plantation, the same situation that uh, we have, uh, for example, in Guatemala for little farmer. And uh, so not just uh, um, coffee cultivation, but also banana and uh, taro cultivation for a food security of a family, and something more like sugar cane, like avocado, like granadilla, like we have two or three plants of cocoa that can uh, complain all of the uh, organization of the little farm. Not just coffee, but something integrated with the environment. So this gives you really a sense of, of how a lot of the small farmers have to, have to live in, in countries like Guatemala or Costa Rica. They, they're working in um, a very natural kind of habitat, not like a rose of, of coffee plants. No, the, the normal uh, the, the farmers in Guatemala are so uh, far from the town in a very nice uh, place, environment uh, in the mountain uh, between 1,500 meters to 2,000 uh, meters uh, above the sea level and normally in a very nice place. Uh, and I think uh, we can consider like Iure for the reason that they preserve the environment that they receive from the father, from the grandfather. And for us, I think it's a challenge. We have to help these people to survive and to have always... Raising awareness about the challenges faced by many of the world's farmers is yet another facet of the Academia del Café Espresso experience. It is part of La Marzocco's ongoing effort to ensure clients better understand the dynamics around the business of making espresso. 
so they can get the most out of their morning cup of coffee. For Monocle, in Florence, I'm Ivan Carvalho. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Don Rafael by Fabrizio De André. Thanks for listening and until next week. Ada per un caffè, ora in carcere usanna fa, guaricetta che ci ci ridendo compagni di cielo ci ha dato mamma. Prima pagina, venti notizie, venduti ingiustizie, lo stato che fa. Si costerne, si indigna, si impegna, poi getta la spugna con gran dignità. Mi cervello mi asciugo la fronte, per fortuna c'è chi mi risponde. Quell'uomo certissimo e immenso, io chiedo consenso a Don Raffaele.